Welcome, listeners, to the Vetfolio Educational Podcast, brought to you in part by Zoetis. We're pleased that you've decided to join us as we explore the topic of minimizing preoperative vomiting and maximizing postoperative care. This is the second in our two-part series, and today's session will feature Heidi Rouse-Limkin as we explore the topic of the technician's role in preoperative care. Heidi graduated from Michigan State's University Veterinary Technological Program in 1984. She has extensive experience in general practice and since 1993 has devoted her technical expertise to the surgical department of specialty hospitals. Since 2006, she has been affiliated with Oakland Veterinary Referral Services in Bloomfield Hills, Michigan. Heidi has become board certified in anesthesia through the Academy of Veterinary Technicians in Anesthesia and Analgesia. Heidi has served on the executive board of the Michigan Association of Veterinary Technicians and is a charter member of the Academy of Veterinary Surgical Technicians, where she is currently serving as the president. Heidi also sits on the editorial review board for today's Veterinary Technician Journal and lectures at national and international veterinary meetings. She's also written numerous papers on anesthesia and surgical-related topics. Listeners, before we begin today's session, please note that the information provided in this session is intended to provide you with practical and timely information to assist you as a veterinary professional. The views and opinions provided are those of our presenters and do not necessarily represent the views, opinions, or policies of Vetfolio and its sponsors. Now, with that, we'd like to hand the microphone over to you, Heidi. I hope you were able to catch Dr. Harvey's great podcast about acute and chronic vomiting. I'd like to build off of his presentation a bit to cover my side of things, the veterinary technician's role. I know that veterinary technicians play an integral role in all aspects of the veterinary surgical patient's care, and I'd like to talk about how we can best work together as a team. The importance of obtaining a good patient history cannot be overemphasized, and veterinary technicians are often utilized for this role. The preventative health care stats, medical conditions, and medications may be outlined in the medical record, but things like diet, housing conditions, and the pet's job may not be. For example, it would be great to know if the Border Collie presenting with a broken toe is an agility champ and that the owners would like to pursue treatment options supporting this goal. Veterinary technicians should be comfortable performing a physical exam as well as listening to heart and lung sounds. I like to use a systematic approach to the physical exam, starting at the head and working my way back towards the tail. I like to pay special attention to organ systems and cardiovascular functions as part of a good pre-anesthetic workup. Minimizing fear, anxiety, and stress in veterinary patients is becoming a standard of care, thanks in part to Dr. Marty Becker and his fear-free movement. For the uninitiated, using fear-free handling techniques is going to make veterinary visits less stressful and more rewarding for everyone involved. I like to explain fear-free this way. If every pet that visits your hospital could fill out a survey and rate your hospital on a scale from 1 to 5, with one being terrible service to five being outstanding service with positive Yelp reviews and friend referrals, do you think that every pet you treat would rate you with all fives? If so, then you're probably already using fear-free methods. But more importantly, 
Implementing fear-free tactics will result in more cooperative patients, leading to more accurate blood tests, less injuries to the veterinary staff, and better client bonding to the practice. What more can you ask for? You should look at all aspects of your hospital to identify areas where dog and cats can be made to feel more comfortable. Fear-free techniques are utilized throughout the hospital and incorporate things like separate dog and cat waiting areas and wards, non-slip flooring for dogs, and low-odor disinfectant. Exam rooms should be stocked full of fun toys and bedding and species-specific pheromones and lots and lots of treats. These techniques should calm even the most savage beasts. It's also helpful to remember that although most pets will be more comfortable with their owner's president, don't hesitate to sedate. Sometimes the nicest thing we can do to alleviate a pet's emotional discomfort is to use medications and sedation. You can learn more about becoming a fear-free certified professional through their website. Once the patient has been examined and the medical records reviewed, the preoperative workup plan will entail further investigation of any abnormalities found during the physical exam. Age-appropriate blood work should be run while other diagnostics such as the EKG, chest x-rays, ultrasounds, and fine needle aspirates could be done as needed. So it seems that things can get complicating pretty fast. Picture your hyperthyroid, renal disease, diabetic, inflammatory bowel disease cats, which is part of why surgical checklists have become a welcome addition to veterinary medicine. It has been reported that up to 80% of medical errors can be attributed to lapses in communication, and surgical checklists have proven to help minimize communication-related errors. Originally used by the aviation industry as a way for pilots to fly the most complex airplanes, surgical checklists have a multitude of uses and can be incorporated into the pre-, intra-, and post-op arenas. In today's litigious society, it's important to have pet owners sign a consent form. Consent forms outline the procedure being performed and indicate some of the possible complications associated with the procedure. I explain that the information on the consent form isn't meant to frighten owners, but to educate them so they can make good decisions for their pet's health care. And I think that most clients appreciate that. And it's likely a veterinary technician discussing the veterinarian's treatment plan. Yes, I said treatment plan, since estimates are what you get when you have your car fixed. And we're not talking about a brake job here. We're talking to clients about medical necessities and the steps we'll take to help make their pet feel better. And I go through the treatment plan line by line with the owner, being sure to explain what each item is for. For example, if we plan to send home Serenia tablets, I'll tell the owner that it will help prevent post-op nausea and help get the pet eating faster after surgery. Then I tell the owner what time to give the medication the evening before the surgery. It's also important to make sure that all team members are on the same page regarding these types of recommendations, especially from the client's perspective. From reception to technician to veterinarian, each staff member should share the same messaging with the clients. Clear staff communication will help reaffirm the client's decisions. For example, let's discuss two scenarios for a 70-pound lab named Hershey requiring a cruciate repair. The same client and her dog will visit two different veterinary clinics and meet the receptionist, veterinary technician, and the doctor in both scenarios. At Clinic A, the receptionist ignores the client when they arrive because she's on the phone. The veterinarian examines the pet and recommends a TPLO, but the veterinary technician questions the client to see if a cheaper extracapsular cruciate repair method was discussed because the doctor hasn't done many TPLOs. 
The owner checks out but is not offered an appointment for either procedure. Now Hershey is examined at Clinic Z, where the pet and owner are greeted by name and the receptionist knows why the client is visiting today. The veterinarian once again recommends a TPLO and the veterinary technician discusses a treatment plan for the TPLO. The receptionist asks the owner if she's ready to book Hershey's TPLO appointment and the client happily says yes. Now, if you were Hershey's owner, which clinic would you prefer to visit? Clinic A or Clinic Z? I know that implementing new protocols and procedures can be daunting, but a good place to start is by discussing any new ideas or changes during a staff meeting where all staff members are invited to discuss the challenges and brainstorm for solutions. It's important to explain to everyone why the change is being made so that they'll in turn feel comfortable educating clients. And new products or services can be added directly onto pre-made customized treatment plans covering a variety of the most common procedures performed. You can also add new items onto the surgical checklist as another way to reinforce staff compliance until it becomes second nature. This will also help ensure appropriate revenues are generated as well as ensure continuity of care. During a typical treatment plan presentation, I'll also discuss fasting instructions with the owner. There are studies that show that dogs fasted for 12 to 18 hours had increased incidence of gastroesophageal reflux versus dogs that have been fasted for only two to four hours prior to anesthesia induction. Interestingly, dogs fed canned food three hours before anesthesia had stomach volumes similar to dogs fasted for 10 hours. Wow. So when I talk about new fasting recommendations, I'm talking about recommendations introduced back in 2011. The current guidelines advise withholding food for six hours prior to surgery and leaving the water out until the patient is pre-medicated. However, if you're gonna keep the pet overnight before surgery, the normal 12-hour fasting may be prudent in the event of stress-related delayed gastric emptying. During the admission appointment, I'll place an identification band with the pet's name, the doctor, and the surgical procedure because you never know when you're gonna have three cats in the hospital or three golden retrievers. Years ago, I was working at a clinic where two brown male tiger cats presented for castration. One cat was a regular castration, while the other cat was also an, an X-lap for retrieval of an undescended testicle. Another technician sent home the first cat, and I was in charge of discharging the other cat. When I presented the only brown tiger cat to the person that came to pick it up, he explained, that's not my cat. I said, what do you mean that's not your cat? Well, we called the owner that took the other cat home, who said he thought something wasn't quite right because the cat didn't seem to know where he was. Interestingly, this owner was supposed to be picking up the cat with a regular castration and never thought to ask why the entire abdomen was shaved. Anyway, this catastrophe could have been happily avoided had each pet been wearing a simple identification band. I also verbally confirm the procedure with the owner, as well as answer those final questions and find out what medication the owner will need dispensed for the post-operative period, by the way, which is more good information to include on your surgical checklist. And I always offer time for a kiss goodbye. Once the anesthetic plan is in place, we'll think hard about the surgical procedure. The veterinary team will need to assemble necessary supplies and equipment and discuss any anticipated challenges, such as special positioning requirements or areas of increased anesthetic risk. I also like to review prior anesthetic records to see if I can do a better job for that patient the next time around. Not only do anesthetic records serve as legal documentation, 
but they also allow informed, flexible, and well-timed responses and changes to their patient status. Anesthetic records can be simple or complex, but the most important thing is that you just do it. The American Society of Anesthesiologists evaluates animals on a scale of one to five, with higher numbers associated with sicker animals who have more severe disease processes. And it's been shown that patients with ASA scores of greater than three are more likely to experience problems under anesthesia than ASA ones or twos, so greater vigilance during the anesthetic period is advised for these patients. Intravenous catheters must be placed prior to anesthesia to ensure that easy access is available if it becomes necessary to administer fluid boluses or medications. If you've ever found yourself placing an IV catheter upside down in the dark under a drape, then I have a news flash for you. That's not the best time to do it. I wish there was a way that we could incorporate the cost of an intravenous catheter into the cost of anesthesia, and besides, it's fun for your vet techs to do. Remember that any good anesthetic plan will provide a combination of unconsciousness, muscle relaxation, and analgesia. And let's not forget, once the patient awakes, we'll need to continue to treat pain during the postoperative period. Barring any contraindications, the pain management trifecta includes local anesthetics, opioids, and NSAIDs. Although pure-mu opioids are very effective for treating severe pain, getting a hold of them these days is a completely different story. According to this self-professed pain pansy, the best analgesic would be capable of blocking 100% of pain perception for extended periods of time. And what would this magical pain medication be called? Why, local anesthetics, of course. Prior to surgery, medications like meropitant, also known as Serenia, can be given to help reduce the incidence of vomiting associated with commonly used opioid premedications like hydromorphone. Serenia can also help with symptoms such as drooling or pursed lips which can be associated with nausea and help the pet start eating faster. There was a study that asked people, where does perioperative nausea rank when compared to death, myocardial infarction, or pain? Interestingly, nausea was the number one concern. So it really shouldn't be surprising that this same study found that 92% of pet owners were willing to pay a minimum of $30 and arrive an hour earlier to help prevent their pet from feeling sick. There was worldwide agreement of this, regardless of economic status. And no wonder, pets are part of the family. If you really think about this, isn't this also another way to model fear-free? I will also say that I was super excited to learn that Serenia was labeled for intravenous injection, since those sub-Q injections certainly can be uncomfortable, even if the injectable Serenia was kept in the refrigerator. Elective surgery is the ideal situation for practicing preemptive analgesia. Remember, animals that get wound up will require higher doses of pain medication more frequently than those who've been pretreated for pain. Induction efforts should be focused on rapid airway access, and preoxygenation should be considered for sick animals, all cats, or any case where you might anticipate a difficult intubation. Pre-oxygenating via face mask for at least five minutes with 100% oxygen prior to anesthesia induction will extend the desaturation time from 90 seconds to three to four minutes. Monitoring dogs and cats under anesthesia should focus on pulmonary, cardiovascular, central nervous system, and body temperatures, since these systems are most effective by anesthetic drugs and surgical procedures. 
The American College of Veterinary Anesthesia and Analgesia recommends blood pressure monitoring as a minimum standard for managing the care of moderate to severely ill animals. It is also important to remember that all patients will experience some level of hypotension while under anesthesia, especially at deeper inhalant levels. Other monitoring considerations may be based on the patient's size, breed, current health status, or medications, or may be dictated by the type or length of surgical procedure. And please, don't drop the ball on these patients when it comes to the post-operative period. We work so hard to keep these animals alive in surgery, only to leave them poorly supervised afterwards. In 2008, Rod Belt and company published the Risk of Death, the Confidential Inquiry into Small Animal Perioperative Fatalities. It said, the postoperative period was the most common time for dogs, cats, and rabbits to die, usually within three hours. Greater patient monitoring and management during this time period is recommended. This really isn't surprising when you look at some of the most common postoperative complications. These patients are still critical, and they need to be monitored for things like hypothermia, hemorrhage, hypoxia, and hypotension, while being continually assessed for pain. So it's important to have experienced technicians continually evaluating these patients in designated recovery areas where medications, supplies, and equipment are readily available to treat all of the most common postoperative complications. But this will necessitate a well-stocked crash cart and team members trained to use it. Veterinary technicians are on the front lines of the nursing care for postoperative patient care where they'll wear many hats. They monitor intravenous fluids, administer medications, and assess pain. They'll ensure that postoperative patients get rewarmed, fed, and loved, and properly fitted with an e-collar, of course. Expressing the pet's bladder before extubation is another way to make each veterinary visit a little more fear-free. Imagine how uncomfortable you would feel if you woke up with a full bladder. These warrior nurses check the vitals every hour, provide a soft, clean bed, and maybe sing lullabies or at least play soothing music such as through a dog's or cat's ear, or use iCalm units. And they'll stay with these patients until fully recovered and resuming normal behaviors. But getting stubborn patients to eat is probably the toughest part of a veterinary technician's job. We all want to be like Mrs. Santa. Eat, Papa, eat. And that's another reason why we love Serenia and pheromones like Feelaway and Adaptal. These are great especially when combined with hand feeding and a variety of palatable food options served on a people plate. Bland diets may be mixed with cottage cheese, honey or maple syrup for dogs, but cats tend to like smelly foods such as clam juice, or as in the case of my cat, ranch salad dressing. Another way to exceed client expectations is to text them a post-operative picture. Now, I'm not talking about immediately post-op since clients don't always love getting a picture of their unconscious dog with its tongue hanging out. But I can attest from personal experience, clients love getting the good ones. And it's a way to help bond the clients to your practice. Just make sure that you always keep your promises. Nothing will upset a client more than being told to expect something and not delivering it. I also don't feel especially compelled to text pictures of pets wearing cage muzzles or those wearing four 
concentrically larger e-collars. When it's time to go home, please book an appointment. Make sure that all medications are prepared and all personal belongings are compiled and ready to go. Sending a get well card is another nice thing to do since just about every pet will heal long enough to get the stitches out. Discharge appointments should be done in an exam room without the pet present to make sure that you have the client's full attention. All important papers should be assembled in a discharge folder that includes things like the doctor's notes, drug inserts, business card or hospital magnet, and any other pertinent handouts. I verbally explain the written instructions and demonstrate treatments, such as exactly how to perform passive range of motion or how to empty a grenade drain or take care of bandages. I also share helpful tips and encourage people to take pictures of the incision area with their cell phone so they'll know what's normal at the time of discharge. It's also a great idea to call these owners 24 hours after surgery since they really do have questions and they don't want to bother you. As you can see, veterinary technicians are an invaluable part of the veterinary healthcare team. With a little advanced preparation, skills, and knowledge, we can work together with our veterinarian to seamlessly care for a variety of surgical patients and help assure successful outcomes. Thank you for your time. Heidi, thank you so much for your time and for sharing your insights with our listeners today. Listeners, we'd like to thank you for spending time with us. We hope that you found the information shared in this session useful. If you'd like to learn more about this topic and have not already taken a look at part one of this series, please visit the website vetfolio.com for more information. Thank you to our podcast sponsor Zoetis for their support. And listeners, let us know what you thought about this session or what topics you would like to hear on a future podcast. You can connect with the Vetfolio team by emailing us at support at vetfolio.com.